Well, hey, good to see all of you who are here, and um, hello to all of you at home as well. I continue to hold to this idea that um, this season has broken us up into uh, different geographic places, but that we're still united together, worshiping together. Thank you guys for hanging in there and continuing, whether you're here in person or you're at home, we're glad that you're here. And if uh, if we haven't met or if you're new, my name is Stephen, I'm one of the pastors here. And today we're, uh, we're continuing in this series we've been in for the last couple weeks, and the series has been called Resist. And uh, the idea behind the series is that, uh, that all of us um, are a part of culture. Actually, we're a part of multiple cultures, and culture has an impact on us. It has a way of shaping and forming us. And in this series, we, we've been using this definition, which comes from a guy named uh, Andy Crouch, who wrote a book, great book called Culture Making. And Andy says that uh, culture is what we make of the world in both senses. Um, which just means that culture has a physical and a non-physical aspect, a seen and unseen dimension. Uh, Culture is the things that we make, the products, uh, the art, the music, the films, the things that we make, the the cars that we build, the houses that we create. Those are all tangible cultural artifacts, things that express something about our culture. Uh, But there's a lot that's beneath the surface as well. A lot about our culture is unseen. It's things that uh, we can't see, things like values and things like our unquestioned assumptions about the, the world and how it works, uh, things like biases, things that, that we just don't even uh, think about. They're, they're all operative underneath the surface. And, and we've been talking about in this series that, that the church is a culture as well, that we, we've at New Denver Church built in very intentionally a culture with creating a mission and a vision and a strategy for the future that, that's all around our interpretation of the Bible. What does it look like to follow the way of Jesus in really practical ways in our everyday life? And, and that culture forms us as we gather together. It's why I've kind of urged us, even in this time of pandemic, to to not give up uh, meeting together and connecting with one another and being in D groups with one another because that culture shapes and forms us because it's not the only culture that we're a part of. We're we're all part of groups that have their own culture, whether it's at our workplaces or even in our families. Our families have culture uh, in our neighborhoods and our city at large. And, and sometimes those cultures and the values and the norms that, that are operative in those cultures can actually move us in the opposite direction of our faith. And those are the times that we need to resist. So that's what we've been talking about in this series. And I was actually thinking about this recently um, on a walk in my neighborhood. So I live uh, in the Wash Park neighborhood, which is right across the university here from the church. And uh, when we bought in that neighborhood in 2009, when we first moved here, one of the things that really drew us to it was the way that the, that the, the neighborhood was laid out and the way it was designed. It, it really was um, sort of predicated around uh, people walking and, and getting outside. It, it has large sidewalks with green spaces, with grass and trees that separate the sidewalks from the road. So it's a nice walking experience. The, the neighborhood is laid out in a grid. And, and so when I go for a walk, um, as I did recently, I often run into my neighbors, e- either other people that are walking or sometimes people that are sitting on their front porch, particularly the, the old houses in the neighborhood like mine. My, my house was built in 1919. And, and then they designed all of the houses with front porches. There was a, a sort of a front porch mentality that you would sit on your front porch and people would walk in the neighborhood and you would see one another. So literally in the design aesthetic, the way that the builders and the designers built our neighborhood, they had this value of neighborliness built in that continues to shape our way of life, you know, 100 years later. And that's culture. That's the power of culture is that we create things, we shape things that we put out in the world, and then they begin 
to shape us. And so that's part of the, va- the, part of the way that the, the power of culture can work. But uh, on a recent walk in my neighborhood, I was noticing something else that, that is, is not new to our neighborhood, but it, it's something that, that's been changing. Uh, it's another cultural art- artifact, a, a physical thing that I've started noticing there everywhere in my neighborhood, and it's yard signs. Now, yard signs are not a new thing at all. Uh, not in my neighborhood, not, probably not in your neighborhood. Uh, they've been around for a long time. But for the longest time, they were mostly very practical. You know, they were things that were uh, set up to sell a house. If you had a house for sale, you would put a real estate sign in your front yard. We have a picture. Yeah, there's one, uh, some real estate signs. Or the one on the right over here, these were taken. I walked around my neighborhood on Friday and took these pictures. The one on the right is a construction, a builder that did some advertising. And then, of course, you know, there's, there's uh, people who are proud of the school that their kids go to. This is for South High School. And with Denver and Choice, uh, a lot of people have to show support so that people will know other people in the neighborhood go to the school and they'll choose that school. So these signs are expressing a lot of different things. And then, you know, there's, there's also uh, another kind of sign uh, that pops up at this time of year in years like this. They're election signs, right? Like political signs. Uh, There's a Biden for president. Now, just to be clear, I didn't preference uh, this picture over another one. Um, To be fair, I didn't see any uh, Trump signs in my neighborhood, which if you know anything about urban Denver or my neighborhood, you know that's not that surprising. I checked the stats, about 80% of people in my neighborhood voted for someone other than the president. So uh, I just don't see a lot of Trump signs. They may be out there, but I didn't see them. But what is actually interesting to me, what is intriguing is that is if, if you walk around my neighborhood today, and maybe if you walk around your neighborhood uh, or other neighborhoods in Denver, there's a different kind of sign that, that now outnumbers these other kinds of signs that have been around for a long time. I mean, probably five or 10 to one. And there's signs that express a kind of, um, of, uh, uh, of endorsement or, or a kind of, um, of, uh, way of looking at the world that's around a cause or a movement. So there's, uh, there's these kinds of signs. So there's a Biden sign in the front, but in the back, there's a Black Lives Matter sign. There's another sign that's about immigration. And there's a lot of these different signs. Um, here's, I've got a picture of another one. There's a lot going on in this picture. There's a lot going on in this sign. I don't know if you've seen these. These have been popping up all over my neighborhood. It says, uh, we believe Black Lives Matter, no human is illegal, uh, so that we got Black Lives Matter and immigration. Uh, love is love. So that's, I think, towards gay rights. Uh, women's rights are human rights. So women, women's rights. Science is real. I kind of think this is a dig at religious people. I'm not 100% sure. I don't know who else is crusading against science out there, but apparently someone is, and these folks are concerned about it. Uh, water is life. And the, lo- the one on the bottom, it's hard to read. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And then there's a website. You can go and buy these signs yourself. It's actually a business. There's a lot of these signs being made and being produced. So there's a lot that's happening on these signs. But the one sign that caught my attention that I want to talk a little bit more about today is this sign. And it's the sign that says in three different languages, no matter where you're from, we're glad you're our neighbor. Now, on the surface, it's a, it's a wonderful sentiment, and, and I believe it, and it's true, and I think it expresses the kind of neighborliness that's literally built into my neighborhood, the kind of care and concern for other people that says, no matter where you're from, no matter who you are, you're welcome here, we care for you as our neighbor. But it, it got me thinking. I started thinking about what the sign communicates 
And then what's going on beneath the sign? And, and it brought to mind a story that Jesus once told that I think challenges something unhealthy that's going on underneath this sign that we need to be cautious of as followers of Jesus. So to talk about that tension, I want to jump right into this story um, that Jesus tells. And it's a, it's a story that's found in the book of Luke chapter 10. So if you want to follow along, you can pull out your Bibles or pull out your app on your phone. So Luke is one of the four accounts of Jesus's life, one of the four gospels. Um, it's, a, it's a great book because it was written by a man who was a doctor um, who, wrote a, who set out to write a very orderly account of Jesus's life. He didn't know Jesus personally, but he interviewed people who knew him. He, he, knew, he interviewed eyewitnesses to the events and the things that Jesus did. And he wrote a very orderly structured history and account for someone who commissioned him to do that. And then after that, he wrote a second volume to this set of histories called the Acts of the Apostles or simply the Book of Acts. It's, it's a great two book set. If, you wanna, if you're new to the Bible and you kind of want to get started, you're not sure where to start, Luke and Acts is a great place to start because it gives you the history of Jesus's life and it gives the history of the early church. So in the story we're going to take a look at today, there's, it's an interaction that Luke tells about uh, this interaction that Jesus had with an expert in the law, an expert in the Jewish law. And the man comes to Jesus and he asks a question and it begins a dialogue. So starting in verse 25 of chapter 10, we read this. It says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So there's a lot going on culturally speaking here. And, and when you start to dig into this, there's a lot of subtlety and nuance. I don't have time to get into all of it today, but I want to point out a few things. First of all, Luke introduces us to this man who comes and asks Jesus a question as an expert in the law, an expert in the law. So we might think of him as a lawyer, but really what he was an expert in was the Jewish religious law. All of the, 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 the guidelines from the Torah, from the five books of Moses that kind of said, this is how Jews are supposed to to live. And if, if you want a really in-depth uh, look at what those look like, come back in about two weeks because Norton's diving into Leviticus. So we're going to talk about all of the guidelines, all of the law that guides, that guided the, the, the nation of Israel. So he was an expert. People would come to him and ask him questions. But here he is, he's asking Jesus a question. And we're told, Luke gives us this insight that he was wanting to test Jesus. He's wanting to test him because because he wants to find out whether Jesus is going to give an answer that is compatible with his knowledge of the law. Is, is Jesus saying something that's, that's heretical, that's, that's against the law? And so he's trying to test him. But Jesus, in his very Jesus-y kind of way, turns the question back on the man and he says, well, what does the law say? You're an expert in the law. What does the law say about this idea of inheriting eternal life and how you do it? And the man says, he gives him this combination of two verses, Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, two verses out of the Old Testament. And this was common for rabbis or teachers to kind of sum it up and say, and this is not new. There's, we have his, historical quotes from other religious leaders, uh, other Jewish teachers who said something similar to this, which is the law can be summed up in two things, love God, Deuteronomy 6, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
Jesus himself said this on a few occasions, and it became known as kind of the the great commandment to love God and to love others, that all of the law and all of the prophets, Jesus would would, would come to say later, everything hangs on this. Do this, Jesus tells him, and you will live. He said, you're right, you answered correctly. Good summation of the law, that's what it's all about. Now, he's not satisfied because his goal was to test Jesus. He was looking to trap him or to catch him in, in a, in a uh, you know, and in, in trip him up and, and, find help, and find something that Jesus said that was, that was contrary to law. So he's not done. He stops again and he says, okay, well then who is my neighbor? So I'm supposed to love God. And I know God is and I'm supposed to love my neighbor. Okay, Jesus, who is my neighbor? Now, the Greek word here that gets used as neighbor has the same connotation that, that we would have it, that there's a geographic sense to it, that someone who lives near to you, a neighbor is someone who is close to you, geographic, but it also had a broader sense in that it, was, it had a sense of brotherhood or community or connection. Um, often the word for, for neighbor gets translated as brother because if you think about to the first century in small villages and in a, in a tribal culture where people lived with family or people from their same ethnic group or religious group, a neighbor would have also been someone who was very similar to themselves. And so he, his question sort of intimates this, this supposition that maybe not everybody who lives near you is a neighbor. Maybe the people that, that are, you're around, maybe they deserve different kind of treatment. So he asked Jesus, who are the people that I need to love as a neighbor? And Jesus tells a story that sets up his answer. And you know this story, you've heard it many times probably, especially if you've been around church. I'm gonna read it to you all the way through, starting in verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, took care of him. And then the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. So we know this story as the story or the parable of the good Samaritan. It's a story that's been told over and over by many, by many people. And you've probably heard verses preached on it. And I think what, what we lose sometimes is just how scandalous this story would have been to Jesus's first listeners, that, that there's so much going on in the ethnic dynamics of this story that he's trying to make a point about that we can sometimes miss it. So this man is traveling on a road that was known to be dangerous. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho, everybody listening was thinking, yeah, if you're traveling that road on your own, you're asking for trouble. So it's not a big shock that this guy fa- falls into the hands of robbers, gets beaten up and left, for half dead. So two men passed by that the crowd, and especially this man, the expert in the law, would have esteemed or would have thought were were very high members of society. Uh, One was a priest, a member of the priestly class who would have been responsible for observing the worship in the temple. And the other would have been a Levite, also a religious person. And both of them 
walked by on the other side of the road. Now, there's a lot of scholars who've said probably what they were doing was avoiding becoming ritually impure by interacting with a dead body. They're walking down a road and they see someone laying on the side of the road who appears to be dead. And rather than stopping and potentially making themselves ritually impure, and they would have had to go through all of these cleansing exercises to be able to go back to the temple, they just walked to the other side and kept going. They avoided him. But a third man comes by, a Samaritan. And you probably could have heard the crowd gasp when Jesus said this because the Samaritans were a group of people who lived north of Jerusalem and they were the enemies of Israel. They, they had intermarried with other uh, people in the region after the, the kingdom of Israel had divided and they were considered traitors, traitors to, 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 the, Isra to the Israelite people. And, and they were hated. There was a strong ethnic animosity. There's a few other interactions we have from Jesus's life where he interacts with Samaritans and it's, it's just scandalous. Even his disciples, when they were traveling places, uh, they would just seek to go around Samaria because they didn't want to even go through that place because there was so much animosity. So to make this man, the Samaritan, an enemy, the hero, would have been shocking. But the Samaritan is the one who stops and who shows love and compassion to this man when the Jewish men, the ones who would have been esteemed by Jesus's audience, did not. And after the story, Jesus, is, Jesus comes back to the man's question, who is my neighbor? And he gives him another question. After telling the story, Jesus says, which of these three men do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So the man and Jesus, the expert in the law and Jesus, they agree. They agree on, that, on, on what is eternal life? How, do, how is it that we receive or inherit eternal life? How do we go about that? We love God and we love our neighbor. Well, who is our neighbor? And Jesus here turns this upside down. The expert in the law is taking this mentality of looking out of the world and saying, I am surrounded by a group of people. Who is it that I need to show love to? And this word love, again, is the Greek word agape. We talked about this last week. This is not affection. This is not friendship. This is not romantic love. This is selfless, self-giving love. The kind of love that God showed to us in sending his son. So in the group of people that I'm geographically connected to, geographically close to, which one, the expert in the law asks, which ones do I need to show this kind of agape love to? And in his mind, he probably had in, in mind an answer to the question. Well, well, Jewish observant, Jewish people for sure, like people who are like me and who love the Torah, who love God, for sure I need to treat them that way. You know, other Jews, that are maybe lapsed Jews. They, they, don't go to, they don't go to temple. They don't really do sacrifices. You know, they're kind of, probably, I probably am supposed to love them too. Gentiles, nah, non-Jewish people, we don't have to love them. Samaritans, the Romans who are occupying our country right now, they're enemies. No way, we don't have to love them in that way, right, Jesus? But Jesus turns the expectation upside down. He says, neighbor's not just a noun, it's a verb. To neighbor someone is to show love and compassion to them. And a neighbor is the person that you show love and compassion to regardless of who they are. Even if there's someone who is your enemy. Even if the person you show love to is someone who hates you. That's the kind of love that God has for us and God wants us to show to others. Love 
turns enemies into neighbors. Which brings me back to this sign. So I want to talk about this sign and maybe what bothered me about the sign. So the sign says, no matter where you are from, we're glad you're our neighbor. And this story from Jesus about being a neighbor raised questions in me as I was thinking about what this sign communicates and what's beneath the sign and beyond the sign and what Jesus says about what it means to be a neighbor, to show neighborly love to people regardless of who they are. So obviously the sign is a statement. It's a statement about immigration policy in America, and it expresses a welcoming attitude to people regardless of where they were from. So I was curious, how many immigrants live in my neighborhood? How many foreign-born people actually live in my neighborhood? And so according to, I looked it up, and according to uh, Denver's 2019 neighborhood assessment, the percentage of foreign-born residents in the Wash Park neighborhood is about 6% which is actually higher than I initially thought. And uh, I looked around at the other neighborhoods in Denver, and that's about the same. You you have to go pretty far outside of the urban core to find anything beyond single digits in terms of of foreign-born immigrants living in Denver. And why not, right? Like, the real estate is so expensive. Anybody who just moved to this country, particularly someone who's from lower socioeconomic level, would never be able to find affordable housing in urban Denver. So my my question is that this sign says, regardless of where you're from, we're glad you're our neighbor, but can you be glad that someone's your neighbor if they don't actually live near you? Is that, I mean, is it possible to, to welcome someone as a neighbor if they're not actually living in your neighborhood? Now, obviously Jesus creates space for this. I would say, yes, the answer is, according to Jesus, you can be a neighbor to anyone that you want. You can be a neighbor to anyone. It broadens our definition of of neighbor beyond just a geographic sense of the people who live around us. It doesn't have to be limited to just the people in our neighborhood. But I wonder, when it comes to showing the kind of love for immigrants that Jesus would call us to, a kind of self-giving love, how often is that actually happening for people who put these signs in their yard? I mean, are people really going outside their neighborhoods to find neighbors and welcome them? find immigrants and welcome them and make them feel like they're part of our community? Are they going to other parts of the city and doing that? Or are these signs about something else? Now, again, I'm not impugning the motives of my neighbors. Um, I'm actually just asking this legitimate question. How do we show neighborly love in the way that Jesus talks about it if we don't actually live close to the people that we say we care about or that we're welcoming? Similarly, in the last two months, there's a lot of signs in my neighborhood that have popped up expressing that black lives matter, which is a sentiment, an idea I totally believe in. And I think we have to say black lives matter because it's specific. If we say all lives matter, then no lives matter. So we start with a specific statement to say black lives matter. That's important. I'm for that. But only 1% of the people who live in my neighborhood are actually black which creates the same sort of tension for all of the signs that I see. I wonder, how many people of color do you actually know? And when you extend that to the city of Denver, only about 10% of the city of Denver are black. So what's the point? The point is that supporting causes is a good thing. I think supporting causes is, is is a fine and wonderful idea but it's very different from loving people. 
It's very different from the kind of neighborly love that Jesus is talking about in this parable. It's very different from the kind of love for neighbor that I think he calls us to as his followers. Supporting causes is not a bad thing, but supporting causes is easy. We post something on social media, we put a sign in our yard, and we feel like we've done something. We, we feel like we've spoken up for the marginalized or we've spoken for those who don't have a voice. But I'm actually wondering if that just sort of inoculates us from actually showing love to real people because you can't love a cause. You can only love people. Neighborly love is something altogether different than support for causes. Showing selfless love to others, welcoming them to our neighborhood, into our circle of care and concern, treating them as a neighbor, that requires something of us. It requires us to get involved in the story. The Samaritan, he didn't just fix the guy up and walk away. He fixed him up. He, he, he gave him some medicine. He put him on his donkey. He took him to an inn. He cared for him there for a day. And then he left money with the innkeeper to say, hey, make sure all of his needs are met. And if he needs anything else, cover that and I'll pay you when I come back. He got involved. He got involved. And I just wonder how much of that is happening within the support for causes that we see so prevalent in our city today. My concern is that our culture, we're really good at supporting causes. We're not very good at neighborly love, which is why I would say we need to resist loving causes and embrace loving people. Again, there's nothing wrong with causes or movements or supporting these things. They can be a great catalyst for us to see what's wrong in the world and to begin taking steps of moving towards getting involved. But if you don't actually know anyone within the group that you're supporting or serving, can you really love those people in the way that Jesus calls us to? The love of neighbor that Jesus calls us to is specific. It's not general. And we need to push past being satisfied with supporting causes and look for opportunities to show love and to be a neighbor to those whom God brings across our path, whoever they might be. P putting a sign in your yard to support Black Lives Matter, to support immigration is fine. But do you know any Im immigrants? Do you know any people of color? And if, if not, no judgment, just why not? What is it about your life that puts you in a position where you're not able to actually know any of the people that you're moved and motivated to care for by supporting these causes? You can't truly love people that you don't know. And while we're talking about love of neighbors, what about your actual neighbors? Like, what about the people who live next door to you or across the street? It's not exciting and it's, that's not a cause that anybody's gonna create a sign for, but what about actually getting to know the people that God has providentially placed in your life across the street or next door to you or across the hall in your apartment? Do you know them? You can't love someone who you don't know. Maybe they're not an immigrant. Maybe they're not a person of color. Maybe they're a white supremacist or maybe they're you know, a person who's part of the, the political party that you hate or maybe... God forbid they're a Raiders fan or something horrible like that. Doesn't matter. God says we're to love everyone, even if they're our, neighbor, they're our enemy. Neighborly love turns enemies into neighbors. And God has providentially placed them in close proximity to you for a reason. Do you actually know your neighbors? 
I believe that the world that we live in today is just like the road of Jericho. I think it's full of people who are hurting and broken and experiencing all kinds of problems in their life. Some of them are really obvious. And some of them are being hurt by things like racial injustice and extreme poverty, homelessness, challenges with their immigration status. And I think all those things are real and we should care about those things. And they're real and they're obvious. But there's a lot of people who are our actual physical neighbors who are hurting and suffering too. Anxiety, depression, loneliness, all of those things are on the rise across our country. Are we taking the time to stop, to get involved, to show neighborly love to the people whom God has placed in our path? Or are we simply passing by on the other side, satisfied to put a post on Facebook or a sign in our yard? My prayer for us is that as we go out of this place and into the week, that we would begin to pay attention to begin to look at the road of our life and to see the people who are hurting and who are broken and who need the care and concern of a neighbor and that we would be neighbors to them this week. Let's pray that God would help us to see that and do that this week. God, um, thanks that um, this isn't just another thing to put on our to-do list, but, but Lord, this is... Um, this is the overflow of the love that you've shown us, that, that while we were your enemies, you sent your son to die for us. And that kind of love, we believe, transforms us as we root ourselves in the acceptance that we don't, we don't have to get it all right. We don't have to be social justice warriors who support every cause or, or spend all their time doing all the volunteer work in the world. We believe that you have called us to share the love you've given us to the people you've put in our path. So God, give us eyes to see the people who are hurting. Give us ears to hear the whisper of your spirit who tells us to stop and to get involved, even when it doesn't make sense. I pray, God, that you would give us the clarity to see and the courage to stop and to get involved and to be neighbors to those who need to experience your love and that we would be that for a hurting and broken world this week. I pray these things through the Son and by the Spirit. Amen.